Good morning. Goeiemorgen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. I have had a brisk early morning. Um, we had a sunrise service across the way um, on the field there with the other congregation. So we had been up since just around five o'clock setting things up, scratching the sleep out of our eyes. Praise the Lord, what a day. I pray that the knowledge of the reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection today brings comfort to you in this season. So this morning, I think it is with great excitement again that we remind ourselves of the significance of Jesus' actions on this day 2,023 years ago. His resurrection has sounded for us, in a very real way, a clarion call that a revolution has begun. And so this morning our text will be found in 1 Corinthians. And I'd like us to take a, a bit of a different look this morning at what the resurrection means to us. So we're going to be reading from... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll read from verses 12 to 20. This is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth as he speaks to them about resurrection. From verse 12, he says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. And verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We'll stop reading there, but we'll consult with some of the other verses that are found in that chapter as well. These are some iconographic images of Jesus Christ, artists' impressions, most of which appeared in churches in the early Byzantine and medieval periods in the form of mosaics or stained glass windows or relief pictures and mostly paintings. We notice that in these images, they all position Jesus 
in a similar pose with a hand gesture that we recognize. On the left there is um, Leonardo da Vinci's um, interpretation in what an image that has been called Salvatore Mundi, the savior of the world. But one of the most common of these kinds of images is called the Christ Pantocrator, or Christ Almighty, which depicts Jesus usually isolated against a golden background with his head encircled by a halo. As we see there, his left arm in some of these pictures often is hugging the Gospels to his chest, and the right hand is raised in this, what we have come to call the sign of the benediction. We note as we see these pictures that this gesture is usually almost always made with the right hand, as this is the hand which um, many Christian doctrines believe is the hand with which one blesses. These images show Jesus in this, what we have come to call the hand of benediction, with the first two fingers extended while the second two are bent towards the palm and sometimes the thumb is also kind of bent inwards as well. This hand gesture, as we know, I think, is also a well-known sign that is given by, by the Pope um, and priests as well as other clergy in Christian traditions. Now, when we see this hand sign, I think we immediately interpret it as a sign of blessing. When we see the Pope or a priest doing the benediction or speaking a blessing, it is often accompanied with this sign. And so we have come to associate it with a blessing. The history of how this style of art depicting Jesus in this particular way actually points us to a different meaning as to what this originally meant or was trying to communicate. The hand of benediction, as we have come to call it, is actually caused by damaging the medial nerve which runs down the middle of the forearm between the bones of the wrist. And this is damage which would certainly have been caused by the Roman nails pierced through Jesus' arms just below his wrists. And so the earliest depictions of Jesus in art before the formal church began in the way that we see it now most likely included this hand of benediction not as a sign of blessing, but rather to show the wounds of his crucifixion. And so I think what is actually happening now in seeing Christ's hand of benediction as a sign of blessing rather than the pain of crucifixion is us rather seeing what the cross has accomplished. And so when we consider what the cross and Jesus' crucifixion means to us today, we see it through the lens 
of us being blessed rather than being stuck in the pain of the crucifixion. And so on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning, I would like us to return again to that question that we have no doubt heard before and will in no doubt hear again in the future. What does Jesus' resurrection communicate to us today? How should we interpret the sign of the resurrection? How do we change how we conduct our lives? How do we interpret being blessed by God through Jesus' resurrection? In what way does Jesus' resurrection and his now authority over death change even the decisions that we would make in this lifetime? In our focus text of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth and he's wanting them to see what life would really be like if there had been no resurrection. Paul, it appears as he's writing this, is wanting the believers of the church of Corinth to deepen their understanding of what they see and what they believe and what they live out when they engage with Jesus. It seems as though the believers at Corinth were struggling to affirm the value of both the body, which is the physical, as well as the soul, which is the spiritual. And so Paul highlights for them the importance of what Jesus, rising from the dead, means for believers. We kind of get the impression that the believers that he's writing to here were highlighting one aspect more so than the other, perhaps the spiritual more so than the physical resurrection. Now, as we read through these words that Paul uses, I think it's interesting to note that Paul here, he doesn't hold back in the way that he describes what the resurrection of Jesus actually brings. Now, in English, as we read through that translation there, we see the wording of the dead being used to describe what is being resurrected. But in the original Greek, the word that Paul uses to describe what is being resurrected by God is nekros, which means a corpse. That is a word that some may deem or consider to be inappropriate in the way that he is describing it. Perhaps a bit too crass a word to use. But Paul uses this language to make sure that the Corinthians completely understand what has been accomplished through Christ's resurrection. Paul does not say that the person's spirit is resurrected or that the soul will go on and be with Jesus. Paul doesn't talk about loved ones looking down from heaven or floating around on clouds. He doesn't coddle them with restrained or subtle words in this letter. The focus for him is on corpses. 
And he doesn't shy away from the tangible image that that creates in the minds and the hearts of the people who he is writing to. Paul gets to the heart of the matter without sugarcoating it. And the emphasis in this whole chapter of the letter is on a bodily resurrection. Paul tells these believers that this is a God who cares about the physical stuff of the body as well as the spiritual. And though the text that we read here does not specify what the Corinthians' concerns were, their main concern to the resurrection appeared to center around the body since that is the focus of Paul's argument. I think when, when people who, um, who struggle with the gospel and how the gospel relies on the physical resurrection of a corpse, a dead body, a necros, they struggle to believe. It is for non-worshippers almost easier to digest a spiritual notion rather than a physical tangible reality. It may be because for some reason they have separated the rule and the reign of God over the physical and the spiritual and then turn around and deny his sovereignty over the physical and they cite the condition of the earth currently with all that is wrong with it as evidence. They might ask questions like, if God created the earth and rules over it, why doesn't he stop or prevent suffering? And why won't he prevent the earth from deteriorating further? And closer to home for us, there may be questions about why our country is in the state that it is in. If our very anthem is a prayer to God... But Paul's experience of seeing the resurrected Christ, as is mentioned in verses 8 to 11, changed his perspective on when and how God was renewing his own creation. Paul's hope for resurrection was no longer for him a distant future dream. Paul's encounter with Jesus completely changed his outlook. Paul came to understand that God's life-giving power and presence had invaded the world and conquered death by resurrecting Jesus. With this act, God declared victory over death. Death, as the Apostle Paul describes it, is not a neutral force. It's not, a, it's not a yin and a yang that brings balance in the universe. It is not a simple state of being or an idea to describe what happens after life. Death to him is an enemy, as he mentions in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an anti-God power that had to be destroyed if creation is to experience abundant life 
And this is how Paul is describing it here. Here in verses 24 to 28, he says, Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. And then verse 28 says, When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This God that we serve, this God that we have gathered here this morning to worship, is a God of life. The gospel that Jesus loved and we embrace promises abundant life. Now, how can there be a promise of abundant life if God is not then stronger than death? If God has not reigned, raised Jesus from the dead, then there is no hope that God will raise anyone else either. Paul also sees death and sin as being very closely linked. A little later on in the chapter, Paul writes that the sting of death is sin. Likewise, also when he writes the letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. According to Romans 5, sin has reigned from the time of Adam and no one has been able to escape sin's power. All have been enslaved to the superpower of sin until this day. The day that Jesus conquered death and the power of sin. God's defeat of death is the signal that God himself has defeated the power of sin. God's resurrection of Jesus is the surety, it is the first fruit that God will defeat the powers of death and sin for all of creation. It is the decisive act that has determined God's ultimate victory. And so if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. If there is no resurrection, then everything we thought that we knew about God is a lie. If there is no resurrection, then all that we have is this life. And the so-called gospel is not really good news at all, but simply news or stories. What is amazing is that this resurrection power 
stretches to all of creation and is not limited just to those of us who are followers of Jesus. Now, when we think about the issues that exist within our broken world, when we think about the issues of our environment, issues in our towns, our cities, our neighborhoods, our country, the world at large right now, we sometimes by default think that those issues may simply just be political issues. Issues that maybe the government or authorities or engineers or scientists need to deal with. Otherwise, we think that caring about others or caring about our city, our environment, is something that activists do, not us. And so you probably might find yourself then settling in that space. But I want to remind you this morning, and I want to remind myself as well, that caring for and being a good steward of and having dominion over this earth is a biblical mandate. And the resurrection that we celebrate today should encourage us to do more. One of the things I think we should be careful of, especially when we are reminded of Jesus' words on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished, is that we sometimes might find ourselves in the light of hearing those words being passive or docile. And we may find ourselves falling into a state of thinking that we don't need to do anything because Jesus has done it all. And on top of that, he's coming back again and then he's going to finish the job anyways. But I want to say to you this morning, I don't believe that that is what the message of the gospel communicates to us. We actually need to be emboldened to be more active in engaging with the things in our culture that are wrong and broken. There should not just be this acceptance of only spiritual renewal accomplished by Jesus but there needs to be, I believe, an equal desire to see physical renewal as well. And so as followers of Jesus, we need to be seen, I think, in our communities, in our city, in our nations, communicating and, and modeling for non-worshippers what resurrection life looks like. As we hold on to the teachings of James regarding faith and works, we must be reminded that our resurrection lives compel us to seek and redeem that which is broken, that which is lost, even dead, and speak life to it, to minister to those things both in the spiritual and the physical. And so what we do as followers of Jesus is we oppose broken structures because they do not reflect the resurrection power of Jesus. You know, when I think about it and the fact that Pinelands is going to be resurrected, 
Cape Town is going to be resurrected. South Africa, in fact, the world will be resurrected in all of its fullness when Jesus comes again. And what we are called to do in the reality of that prophetic word that is communicated through us in the message of the gospel is that we need to be at work now bearing witness to what these places should look like in the presence of a resurrected Jesus. You see, if this resurrection is true in all of its fullness, then most everything must change because most everything has fallen. Nothing, I believe, is exempt. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes how all of creation is groaning as under the pains of childbirth. And so everything, I think, is worth fighting for. Otherwise, in the words of Paul later on in verse 32 and in the, in the words of the writer of Ecclesiastes, we may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. As I conclude, I want to read a few words from one of Charles Spurgeon's great sermons on the resurrection of Jesus. This was a little section that Charles Spurgeon preached on Easter Sunday in 1889. This is what he said. He said, The resurrection of Christ casts a side light upon the gospel by proving its reality and literalness. There is a tendency in this generation to spirit away the truth, and in the doing thereof, to lose both the truth and its spirit. In these evil days, fact is turned into myth and truth into opinion. Our Lord's resurrection is a literal fact. When he rose from the dead, he was no specter, ghost, or apparition, but as he was a real man who died the cruel death of the cross, so he was a real man who rose again from the dead, bearing in his body the marks of the crucifixion. His appearance to his familiar companions was to them no dream of the night, no fevered imagination of enthusiastic minds, for he took pains to make them sure of his real presence and that he was really among them in his proper person. A man there was, a real man, who once on Calvary died. That same blessed man arose from death. The mark is in his side. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, on this beautiful Easter day morning, we want to say thank you for the resurrection. We want to thank you and honor you that you sent Jesus Christ, your Son, to incarnate himself into the brokenness of this world and to sacrifice himself for the sins of this world. And so, Lord, this morning we are so thankful
that in this time, in this moment, we can reflect on what Jesus has done, but we can also look to the future of what the fullness of your resurrection will bring. And so, Lord, even as we leave this place today, as we go back to our homes, as we share fellowship with family and friends, later in this week, as we enter back to our workplace, into places where we move and live and have our being, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to remind us of the resurrection power that you have placed within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.